Seriously Sober. All right, y'all, I have to share with you what I've been up to. I just started a business with New Skin, and I absolutely love it. The company is amazing. The people that you meet are so empowering, and they focus on self-development, which is so important for us as recovering addicts. It was completely free to sign up. I was apprehensive at first because I didn't think that I would really do well at it, but little did I know I would be waking up every day building an empire. I was able to quit my full-time job and work directly from home every single day and be present for my family. So if you guys are interested in joining my team, I would love to tell you more. Just send me a message on Instagram at sober seriously, and I will fill you in. Literally guys, it takes no money to make money. I'm telling you, you will not regret it. What's up, Sober Nation? It's Donnell, and I'm coming back at you with another episode of Seriously Sober. Oh, I'm so excited about today's guest. Um, I'm changing things up a bit. Um, I have a mother who is on that has just inspired me. I follow her a lot. She inspires me daily, um, and she's going to talk a bit about what she does and also about what it's like being a mother of someone that is in addiction. Um, so welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so good it's to have to you here. With you. Yes. You. So Barb, Barb Klein is her name, and um, she's done so many amazing things. Um, Barb, why don't you just tell us a little bit about what you've got going on currently? Currently, okay, that's easier than backtracking. So thanks. <laughs> yeah, no problem. All right. So currently, um, my business is called Inspired Possibility, and through that, I support people one-on-one through coaching and group work and retreats. I do some staff retreats. Everything is really geared around mindfulness and self-care and self-awareness, self-compassion, um, really deepening your relationship with yourself. Coming home to yourself is what I call my coaching program because it really is about coming back, coming back to the core and finding that core strength within ourselves, regardless of what's going on in the world outside of us, um, which feels really, really, really important right now. Absolutely. Yes. I'm <laughs> just going to say that. <laughs> on top of all the personal things that are going on, you know, it's just really never been more important to be grounded, I think, in ourselves and in our, in our own truth. So along that lines, I have a, a group called Soul Care that I run that is my self-care sanctuary. We meet weekly um, just to focus on self-care and to share wisdom with each other and to just continue that journey. I mean, some of the women in there have been with me for a couple of years. And so we just keep deepening. What, is, what does real self-care even mean? And how is it showing up now? What are we doing now? Um and I'm doing a couple of mini retreats, mini virtual retreats with a friend of mine who's a yoga instructor. Love and yoga. <laughs> we do too. And and Carol Moon is my co-facilitator for those. And she's done re- uh, the yoga at my retreats for a couple of years now. And it's just a really nice space. We did one in August. And it's two and a half hours of 
a little bit of reflection, a little bit of breathing, a little bit of movement so that, you know, we bring in my book and we read some poems and then we have people journal and reflect on that and then do some movement to integrate that in and have a little bit of sharing time. And even in just a couple hours, it's amazing to me how deep people can go and how open they become and how calming even that little bit of time can be. Carol and I did a Facebook Live last week in preparation for one of the many retreats that was supposed to be yesterday that didn't happen. But just talking about acceptance and surrender, I thought, you know, those are two terms that probably a lot of people might have a reaction to. And I don't want to accept anything about this and I don't want to surrender. So what's so we did this Facebook Live and she just led, led us through this really short, she read one of the poems and she did a little practice of tuning into our bodies and in like two minutes. It just felt so much calmer. In fact, I came out of it. I'm like, I don't even want to talk loudly. I don't want to wake up that part of me that was here before. So I love it. Yeah. So that's what I'm up to now. Really just trying to bring a lot of mindfulness and presence and calming the nervous system and and helping people to to find their ground in troubling times. That's amazing. Um, And, you know, it's so important for the recovery community um, always, you know, no matter how far into recovery you are in, you need to definitely stay grounded. Um, self-development is huge. Mindfulness is huge. Um, so, you know, thank you so much for just always being that reminder. Um, I listen to a lot of the things that you share and it helps me in my recovery tremendously. Um, so also you had mentioned that you have a book um, which I absolutely love. So glad that you shared it with me. It's called 111 Invitations. Um, and can you just kind of fill the listeners in as to what it's about? Sure, sure. Yeah, it's called 111 Invitations, Step into the Full Richness of Life. And it is a collection of poems and prayers and reflections on everything that life is. Um the original working title was Garden of Inspiration, and it became clear to me very early on that like life is not all sunshine and rainbows, so I needed room for the darkness. And I needed to be able to talk about this this confusing place of contrast and contradictions, that amazing things can be happening on one side and awful things at the same time. Things that our mind can't make sense of because we live in this world where we want to be, but it's all good or it's all bad. And the reality is life is messy and human is messy. And usually we are in the middle somewhere of like, I don't know if there's a good time to read from the introduction, but that's part of what I was going to share. The opening is, yeah, is go ahead. Yeah. Want me to do it now? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Maybe it'll give a, a sense of what this is all about. Yes. <laughs> So for the past several years, I've walked a path where on one side, landmines explode, one after the other, sometimes in rapid succession, destroying my world as I knew it to be. On the other side, hope, dreams, and passion flourished in a journey of deep connection with myself, discovering what lights me up, and claiming my purpose, passion, and power in this world. It's impossible to coexist in a space of such extreme contrasts, you know, and that's that's what I, that's what this book embodies. And, um, it's been really fun to watch people work with it and, and the way it resonates with people. And 
what I find more often than not is people can open it randomly and they get exactly the reading that they need. I actually use it in my coaching that way now. And I just have people pick a number and I open it up and 98% of the time, I never want to say a hundred, but you know, it's usually like, Oh my gosh, that's exactly what I needed to hear. So I feel like the pieces carry universal messages. Um, I didn't actually want to write a lot about what my story was when I was writing each of the things because I wanted people to be able to resonate with them and right. feel like, okay, yes, this was my journey with my son's addiction, this piece. Uh, to my friend, it was her journey with breast cancer. So, yeah. Which is so, it's so crazy that you say, you know, you give someone a number and then you just kind of pick because I have recently been grabbing your book at night, right before bed. Um, it's my, you know, daily thing. Mm-hmm. And I will literally just open the book and read. And every single thing in there, I'm like, oh, I needed that, you know? And it's like, my higher power knows what I need. <laughs> um, but if you don't mind, I would like to just read my favorite one, uh, my Please. favorite poem. So it is your story. It's towards the beginning of the book, um, but it really resonated with me. Um, and it just was empowering for me. And it helped me to kind of get past those yucky feelings of being in recovery, um, because there are yucky feelings, you know, all that guilt and, and shame. Um, so it's called your story, the story of your life. What do you want it to be? What does it look like, feel like? What is the message of your story? Where do you choose to focus? What perspective do you offer? How do you want to be seen? What do you want to represent? How do you want to live? Go and write, go out and write that story. Not the one you've bought into or the one you've been told. Live your story, your perfect expression of goodness and grace, of all that you are in divine perfection. Oh, my heart. I love it. I love it. And I share it with a lot of people that are in the rooms with me and they love it, you know, and it's just, it's great. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad that does speak to you. And, and I I was laughing listening to you because I'm like, yeah, there are a lot of questions in this book. So it's a lot about self-reflection. Absolutely. <laughs> um, which is great. You know, I love that it really, and when the title came to me, which it literally dropped in when I was in a massage, it was like 111 invitations. I was like, cool. I didn't want it to be about me. I wanted to invite you in. Um, and I had a number then, which was great. But look at what you're doing, you know, and look at, and, and this is so true for so many women I talk to, you know, those moments of pain and struggle that we've gone through can actually be the greatest catalyst for the work that we are here to do in the world. And so, yes, the yucky feelings, the guilt, the shame, the pain, the I wish I had never gone down this road. Um, and at the same time, I would say everything in your life, everything in my life has brought us to this moment now. And so it's really what you do with that that matters it's do you do you stay in the muck and the icky feelings or or do you find a way to to let it catalyze you to let it turn into something beautiful whether it's for just for yourself i mean this isn't not everybody's going to go out and serve the world and they don't have to but just even serving yourself does serve the world because you're you're bringing a gift you're bringing 
Yeah, I do believe every single one of us is born with gifts inside of us that we're meant to share. And who knows why we walk the journey we walk. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it, it's really difficult for us when we're in active addiction to see those things. Um, you know, it, the feelings that we experience are are all, you know, just like the world is crumbling, right? Um, and I never thought I would be at a place where I made light of what had happened to me and my journey. Um, and here I am. Um, and you, I've heard you mention many times, it's really all about mindset, right? Um, and, and I completely agree. I encourage everyone to, you know, get, get grounded, you know, like Barb says, and, and that's just going to be really helpful in your journey. Um, so Barb, can you just kind of explain how addiction has affected your life? Sure. Thank you. Yeah. And, and thank you for inviting me in with this perspective because I don't, I don't have the personal experience of living with addiction myself, but, uh, it certainly came into our family 11 years ago through my son. Um, in a very shocking and unexpected way. I, I guess I just hadn't seen it coming at all. He was 16, and I think it's very easy to confuse typical teenage behavior and and just miss. I mean, I missed. I missed a lot that was going on. I had no idea. And so when I discovered it by confiscating his phone one night while he was doing his homework and seemed really distracted, and you know, started scrolling through the texts and, and found the picture of weed and the plan to meet a guy at the end of the street at midnight. It was like, it rocked my world. Um, I can viscerally feel it, the, you know, physical reaction I had. My whole body was shaking. Um, and in some ways it seemed like an overreaction because I'm sure every parent out there would be like, yeah, all kids smoke pot. What's the big deal? And I still don't know. I don't know if part of me knew that this was a bigger deal than that or what, but I definitely had a big reaction to it. And I felt like I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know who to talk to about this. I mean, I pulled my husband in immediately and we confronted my son and we, I'm sure, got into counseling immediately because that's how I roll. But there were no books out there for somebody like me um, that I could find. I guess I didn't know the term codependency, so I wasn't looking at that because I wasn't codependent yet. I mean, I didn't even know it was addiction. I just knew it was marijuana use. And, um, you know, just for the first time in our lives, felt like we couldn't necessarily turn to the school to say, hey, this is going on. Can we partner together? Because that's usually what we had done with problems at school. And this is the thing, like, you don't want people to know. You don't talk about this in the grocery stores. And... So I felt very alone. I felt very terrified. And I, it was probably about seven months later that we found a, a counselor who specialized in addiction and did an assessment. And we saw how extreme this was and that he really did have a, a strong addiction to marijuana, which a lot of people don't think that that's possible either. And it's like, you know, I think it's like alcohol. You know, some people can and some people can't. And, you know, initially it just felt like, the bottom was falling out, you know, like this big sinkhole opened up in front and I had all the questions and no answers of like, 
Will I be able to keep on working? Will my marriage survive this? Will our family survive this? Will he be okay? Well, I know I can scoop him up, take him to Peru, and I'll get him clean. You know, that's the first, that was my first reaction. I can fix this. I can, I can take him. We'll spend three months in Peru in the jungles and we'll be fine. <laughs> I don't even know where Peru came from. But it was just like, I know. Yeah, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I you know, it. it seemed like it made sense and I didn't know what to do. So yeah, that's how it started. And, um, definitely has continued. Um, it's been a long, hard journey with all of, all of the aspects of I mean, he is still alive. So I haven't experienced that piece, but just about anything else that you can imagine going along with addiction, he has been through homelessness and rehabs and jail and, um, really, really hard decisions along the way for sure. So for me, you know, it's it's so interesting to not interesting, it's great to have you on here to share these experiences because a lot of times the addict they don't realize how much they're affecting their parents or their their family, their loved ones, um until, you know, they're better and I wanted you to come on here and just share with people how you were feeling about, you know, what, how did you feel? Did you blame yourself? Did you go through a lot of stuff with that? Or how did, how did you feel overall with that? I mean, I know you were scared and, and manic, but. that <laughs> <Yeah, bad. laughs> Right. <laughs> Panicked. Yeah, I remember pulling my hair out and. Um, I'm sure, I mean, yes, there have been those leading questions of could we have done things differently? Of course. Um, I don't think I went, I don't think either my husband or I did go super deep into this is our fault. Good. Um, yeah, I, I guess we were healthy enough to not, not do that. But at the same time, of course, you know, and, and to, I mean, still, I look back at our life and I, and I've had this conversation with my son to say, you know, everything we did, we did from love and we did the best we could and we're not perfect. And I understand how some of the things that we did could have made you feel not okay. You know, he had ADD from early on. And so there was a lot of school advocacy and trying different medications and trying different therapies and doctors and a lot of poking and prodding and, and trying to find answers. So. Yeah, how does a person feel when they're in school and they're getting redirected all the time? And I just feel like he, and again, this isn't to say it's my fault, but I think it's probably a contributing factor that he went through that, just not feeling okay in his own skin, not feeling okay to be who he was. Um, and I think that's part of our healing now is to be able to have that conversation and say, because you know, you say the addict isn't aware. And I think a lot of times he was aware and that just added to the cycle as well, because I know what I'm doing and it's hurting my family. And I'm just, you know, so I think that that pain of oh, crap, I'm doing this thing and it's killing all of us and it is beyond my control. Um, so I want to free him from some of that shame that he feels too, because he, I mean, really he looks at his life and he's seen so many other people that's like, well, of course it, they ended up on this path. It makes sense. You know, they didn't have heat or their family was actively using with them. He's like, 
that's not how it was for us. I don't get this. How did I end up here? And, um, you know, I was the room mother. My husband coached baseball. Like we did all the things. We were a suburban middle class family. This isn't our, wasn't our expected path. Um, and actually Glennon Doyle wrote a fabulous book called Love Warrior. Um, that I shared with him and that open listening to her talk about that. There's a section where she says, I was loved from the moment she was born. And I hear the confusion in her, you know, of I was loved. How did I end up with bulimia? How did I end up with addiction? How did I end up here? Um, so lost. And so to be able to say to him, share that with him and say, yes, you know, on the surface, everything looked okay. And clearly inside something wasn't. And I'm really sorry, you know, and love you. And we did the best we could. And we're and we're doing the best we can now. And together, you know, I just he has asked me at times, like, why why is my journey so hard, Mom? Why why am I on this path? I'm like, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know, but clearly, yeah, you signed up for a tough one this lifetime around. Right. Right. Yeah. I, um, I definitely think that a lot of us as addicts, um, are those high functioning, you would never think there is an issue type people. Um, I've talked with a lot of people. I am one of them, you know, on the outside, I had it all together. I, you know, had started a special Olympics cheerleading squad. I was working. I had a great job. I had beautiful family. I had the white picket fence and, you know, the in-ground pool and everything, you know, that you think you want and you dream of, right? But on the inside, I was crumbling. And that was where it was hard for me because you don't want anybody to know that you're crumbling. So for me, it was it was hard for for me to actually just come out and say, okay, I am an alcoholic, you know, because there's so much shame and, and the stigma that comes with alcoholism. It's, it's terrible. And that's, you know, partly why I started the podcast is because I want people to know that it's okay to go down that path um, as long as you're fixing it, you know? Um, and so for your son, you know, it's, I, I understand why he feels the shame. Um, but like I said, most of us, most of us are really, uh, are really good at hiding it and, and we've grown up with great lives, but it just happens. So. Well, and what I've seen in a lot of the, the kids that I hear about, um, and know is very sensitive souls, very wise, very, um, tender. I mean, I just feel like the world is too harsh a place for the people that I have heard of, you know, and it's like, I was just listening to one of your other episodes talking about the image that people have of what addicts are. And it's just, I haven't seen the partiers, you know, I haven't seen it coming from that aspect. I've seen, I have seen it be more a way of numbing and protecting and not wanting to think or feel. They're thinking and feeling. And, right. you know, certainly with my son, that's what it's been. So I just, I think that's important that we humanize it too. And that's part of why I'm 
coming on podcasts and talking about it because I also want to release the shame and the stigma um, so that you do talk about it in grocery stores and you don't hide it. And it's it, the same as any other disease. Um, it, it really is. It, and, and it's it's just mind-boggling to me how, how everyone is so ashamed of it. Um, you know, you had mentioned we don't talk about it in grocery stores. This is just stuff we don't talk about, you know, and I, I so wish that it could be, you know, a, just as like just the same as like um so for example when I got COVID, you know, Donnell got COVID. If you guys talked about that in the grocery store, I want it to be Donnell has alcoholism. She's struggling, right? Because, you know, we need help. We need that help and to shame it, it's it makes it ten times harder. So the more we can bring it above the surface and and do talk about it as if any other disease. I mean when we we went to visit him one time when he was out of state in rehab and we're staying in an Airbnb and the couple just said, Oh, your son's here. You know, when I used to dread those questions, Oh, your son's here. What's he doing? And I, I would say stupid things like, well, he's figuring out his life or whatever, you know? And finally I just said, well, actually he's here and he's in treatment. And I was willing to risk their discomfort because there is that awkward pause of, Oh, you know, I don't know what to say to that. But I think the more we, I mean, it's it's an epidemic addiction now, right? So the the more we can normalize this and bring it out into society and open it for discussion, mental health issues, um, as a real thing that our society needs to face and not hide and not not put families in silence over <laughs> and individuals exactly. in silence over, you know, where it's eating them up alive alone. We, we can change the world absolutely in a better way we can start to save some lives we can start to right because that you know there are people out there that have not been as lucky as you know i have or your son you know and they've lost their lives and the effect that it has on families it, it's just incredibly crushing and um it's time you know it's time that we get out there and we we speak about what is on our mind about this and we get it to where it's okay. You know, it's okay to have problems. It's okay if you have bulimia or, you know, you need help with opioid addiction or something. It, it's okay. And, um, yeah, I appreciate your movement to do that. And I yours. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so if you could, um, if you could give family members of addicts, say that, you know, they've got someone that's really in active addiction and they've just seen it all, you know, if you could give them advice. And I know that's a really deep one and I know you oh. could give a lot. What would you tell them? My wish for them would be that they find a way to live their lives and that they don't put everything on hold waiting um, because I, I did that. I mean, there's certainly that natural tendency. Well, we'll get to that when he's okay or when he dies. I mean, honestly, I see that a lot. It's like, I'm not going to do anything until there's resolution. And this is a disease that can be ongoing forever. You know, I mean, there's no guarantee, right? There's no promise 
And I, I guess what I had to come to was to that reality and to accept the fact and even to say to him, I have to accept that you may not choose recovery. You may not choose the path I hope you choose. Um, so how do I live my life? And I think I just see way too many parents dying along with their child, waiting to get the call, um, which we all know what the call means, and doing everything, putting all time, energy, and resources towards trying to save another person, which we can't do. And, and we have to come to that place of accepting it's a dance, I will say, because I, I just think there's times when you step in and there's times when you step out. And I don't think there's anyone who can tell you hard and fast, this is when you do, you know, this is the right thing to do here or there, because I just think each person in each family has to walk that path and find out for themselves what's okay with them. What can they tolerate? What do they have the bandwidth for? Because if you're not at the top of your game, guess what? It's okay to turn off your phone and not answer pressing urgent texts for a little while, you know, give yourself space. And I did that one day. It was like, I started getting texts early in the morning and it was just, I don't have it in me right now to have this conversation. I needed to take the entire day to talk to friends, to journal, to meditate, to get a massage and get to a place where I was strong enough then I can pick up the phone. And I just sent the text that said, I can't talk right now. I'm not available. I trust that you know and will find the help that you need. And, there, you know, what my counselor, one of the best things she ever said to me was to not confuse caring with responsibility. Because it doesn't mean that you don't care. It doesn't mean you don't love them. And in most cases, these are adults or young adults. Um, and I think one of the best things we can do for them is to trust them and empower them to find the resources and the help that is beyond us, um, to not think that we are the only ones that can save another person, because we can't, um, to redefine, to redefine what love is and what love looks like, to redefine what a good mother is, um, because guess what? This is not a conditioning, right? A mother keeps her child safe regardless, no matter what. It's my job. And I guess until I was faced with the harsh reality that even in my own home, unless I keep him chained to me 24-7, I can't keep him safe. I had to let go of that one. That's just a lie. That's a belief. That's a falsity that didn't do me any good. And I also don't think it's fair to him for me not to be okay until he's okay. That's a pretty heavy burden to put on another person. So I've really come to this place of we each have our own soul's journey. And my life and my well-being are affected by yours, but they also exist independent of yours. I'm a mom, but I'm also an author, a businesswoman, a yoga student, a meditation teacher. You know, I mean, there's... And you forget that. I forgot that. When I was, when you're in the throes of it, it feels like this is everything. And it really was a wake up for me, like within the last year to just go, wait a minute. You know, for 29 years of my life, I wasn't even a mother. And then for 15 years of that life, I was a mother with not 
addiction in the family. So really, it's just this one part of my story. It's one thread of the tapestry of my life. It's not everything, and it doesn't have to be everything. And I don't, there's no value in me drowning along with him. You know, Wayne Dyer, one of my favorite spiritual teachers, used to say, if there was enough suffering that I could take on that would take away your suffering, I would do it. But there's not. There's not enough suffering that I can do that's going to make him better. So right. I don't, that was a long answer to, but really, you know, find a way to live your way, your life. Find a way to take care of yourself because in the end, that's going to actually serve everybody. Right. You'll, you'll be able to respond from a grounded place, from a, a healthy place. You'll be able to set boundaries. You'll be able to recognize that my husband said at one time, he's like, well, there's love for him and there's love for me, right? Yes. You know, like love yourself, love your other kids, love your partner. And lots of times I think if you put your energy into those things, I think in some ways I was getting in his way when I wouldn't, when I was doing too much. I was yes. overdoing, overfunctioning, overthinking, over, you know, so it also, it required me to step off the plate, even if I didn't really trust. <laughs> I mean, it's like you fake that piece about, okay, I'm trust you got this. But guess what? That day that I didn't answer his phone call, by the time I finally got to him, he had made the phone calls he needed to. He right. had figured out some things. I mean, I'm not saying that's the end of the story, but in that moment, at least, he knew he could do something, and he had to do something. Right. Yeah, there's definitely a fine line between tough love tough love, and enabling. You know, um, I know a lot of times for me, I, I look back on my journey and Bless, I, I grew up with my grandparents and, you know, bless my grandmother's heart. Um, she didn't know what to do. And a lot of the times I, I've seen, you know, enabling. It was kind of like, okay, you, you messed up, but let's move on and never talk about it again, right? Um, there were no real consequences to my actions. Mm. And it wasn't until I got that tough love basically, you know, get it together or like you can't come around anymore. You know, everybody's tough love, everybody's bottom is different, but um it wasn't until I got that tough love that I finally had something click where, okay, like I need to fix this. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, that there is that fine line. And a lot of people that I speak with um that are in recovery, they were enabled for a lot of years. Um but saying that, you know, it's no one's fault because who, in the, as a family member, you don't prep for that. We don't learn that in school. We don't go to college to learn what that means. No, there is no what to expect when addiction enters your home. You know, I, I laugh <laughs> yeah. about that. It's like they drop you off in the toddler years and then you're on your <laughs> yeah. own in the hardest times. But one, I took a training on family recovery, and um, one of the things that she said really stayed with me, and this was just last year, um, you stop treating your adult child like a sick child and treat them like an adult. And, and really, I do think it's tricky, though, when there's mental health at play, because there's always that question of how much really can they handle 
And it's easy to think, you know, they don't know how to solve problems. But then I got curious about that, too. And it was just like, you know what? He's actually extremely resourceful. He's just not always solving the problems that we would like him to be solving. So trust that if that, that, if that resourcefulness is there that's kept him alive all this time, um, you know, it's there for, for other things, if and when that's the choice he wants to make. Um, and I guess the other thing I'd say is, is tough love, do it for yourself, not with any, not to force something to happen, not to try to force somebody to their bottom or to think that you, because that's just manipulative too. Um, and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So, you know, telling my 18 year old son he couldn't live with us any longer wasn't a punishment. It wasn't, like you said, that was merely a consequence of, okay, you know, we've done all the things. We've tried to counseling, we've tried outpatient, inpatient, and we're at the point now where clearly we can't continue to live in this house because we can't have this, this level of chaos. And it is like living in a hurricane, you know, and it will scoop up everybody and tear off the roof and the floor and the whole deal. So yeah. you got to get to that point where like this is not tolerable for us. Right. And, and, and we, and we love you. And like you said, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, gotta be so difficult because you're like okay am i if i give this tough love is is this person is my son or you know is this addict strong enough to accept the tough love you know because you you worry that you're going to make them worse right um or or they'll die i mean they'll die yes Um, we definitely spent eight years going he's gonna die he's gonna die he's gonna die (laughs) right and now I have to go, okay, we've worried about that for 11 years. I'm not saying he won't, but he hasn't. So I wouldn't want to waste all of my time in that worry either. So, yeah, so it sounds like it got to a point for you and your husband that you guys were just, you you feel like you had exhausted everything. You tried everything, and it was time. And I, and yes, I, and yeah, go ahead. I would say I had to try everything that I knew I could try before I got to that point. Because honestly, probably a week, a month before inpatient, he was threatening to run away. And at that point, I was, I was literally tearing my hair out. Like, no, don't do that now because I thought inpatient is going to solve it, you know? So, um, I didn't realize they only got 10 days in inpatient. And clearly that's not really enough, but I was naive and innocent and hopeful. But, I, but if I hadn't done all the things, I couldn't have gotten to that point. So, I, I mean, I think that's an important thing to know, too. Like, this is a journey. This I didn't, I didn't land here right. <laughs> from the same place 11 years ago. I mean, I, was, I did all the messy things, and I was a mess, and I didn't know what to do. And I, and I still could be brought to my knees by it in a heartbeat. You know, it's not over and done with. It's just... I think I have more resources now to not stay there as long and to find myself and to find a way to take care of me. And honestly, one of the the beautiful questions I asked, which a beautiful question is something that your mind alone can't answer and you might have to sit with it for a while. But the beautiful question I came to was, what if we stop trying to save his life? And we love him as he is for as long as he's here. 
And that shifted everything. I mean, that really frees everybody to go on. Yeah. It's, it's, it's facing the reality because I can't save his life anyway. Yeah, that's, um, that makes me want to tear up, you know, thinking about, because that is a very strong question. Um, and it's in somewhat a way of acceptance, right? I would, I would think, yeah. um, but yeah. yeah, good for you. Um, but you know, the thing is, like Barb was saying, guys, she didn't just get here. Um, there were a lot of messes. There were a lot of crazy moments and, you know, panicking. And and it's not like she just woke up and decided it's okay. I mean, it took time and effort. And uh, you guys can do it as well as family members. Um, but, you know, Barb, you had mentioned, too, that, you know, your son, you're like, he's, he's resourceful. Um, and I kind of like giggle, it's not funny, but I kind of giggle at that because I think that most addicts are very resourceful. Um, if we want something that's going to get our addiction a going, we find it, right? We get every resource out there. Um, so it's like when we're finally ready to recover, we find those resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's just that acceptance, you know, acceptance is key. We've got to be ready, you know? So, well, thank you so, so much for coming on. Is there anything else you want to share? Maybe a poem. Yeah, that would be would awesome. that be okay? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I think I'll read A Parent's Love. A Parent's Love Runs Deep. Crosses vast caverns, stands the test of time, flows steady over and through rocks, mountains, barricades. A parent's love knows no bounds, is limitless, unending, unconditional. A parent's love wishes it were strong enough, deep enough, grand enough to heal all the wounds of the child, to mend the broken heart, to correct the course that seems so wrong. And sometimes a parent's love is strongest when it surrenders and lets go of what does not belong to it, remaining true, constant, and ever-present, but unable to do more. Wow. Yes, I I love it. And I, you know, I'm just going to end with that. That That's beautiful. And I'm a parent of, of three, and uh, just thank you so much for sharing your journey and and giving parents out there hope because it's very important and uh, I appreciate everything you're doing and uh, thank you for sharing okay thank you for having me it's been great yes talk to you soon okay I know that we understand that we're hurting family and friends and the people that love us the most when we're in addiction but it's really good to hear from someone that was an outsider looking in. Um, Barb, thank you so much again for coming on. You are truly the epitome of someone who went through something really, really hard, and that's an understatement, and made it positive. Guys, please check out her book. It's 111 Invitations. Step into the full richness of life. It is available on Amazon. 
you won't regret it. I love it personally. Also check out her website. It is www.inspiredpossibility.com. And that wraps up today, but I'm super excited for our next episode because I'm bringing on my girl Gabby, who I met at treatment. She's going to share with you her journey through addiction, what she's up to now, and what it's like to live as a recovering addict who is also black and gay. You're not going to want to miss this. If you have questions or you're interested in doing a collab or coming on the show, find me on Instagram at Sober Seriously. As always, stay strong, stay sober, be a good community, and if you need help, reach out. There is no shame in being addicted to something that's addictive. Peace out, guys! Seriously Sober.